Hello and welcome to the MPA Futures Group podcast. Welcome back to our second episode. Gosh, amazing. We're already uh, on our second episode. Thank you for tuning in, hopefully again. My name is Henry Marsden. I'm part of the MPA Futures Group, and I'm excited to be bringing you another brilliant episode of our brand spanking new podcast. Thanks as ever to the Music Publishers Association, the MPA, for helping to facilitate production and distribution of these episodes. If you're a member of the MPA, or if your company is, it's well worth getting involved. The MPA hosts loads of courses, networking opportunities, specialist seminars and the like, championing and safeguarding the interests of their publisher members. It's a great vehicle for helping people integrate with and understand the publishing industry on a deeper level at all stages of their careers, but especially if you're just getting started. Talking of which, we are the Futures Group, a specific part of the MPA focused on connecting and encouraging those who are less experienced within publishing. Music publishing is a pretty complex and often opaque industry and we're here to help encourage and support younger people into fulfilling and successful careers. So head over to the MPA's website, mpaonline.org.uk to get involved with both the MPA and to find out a little bit more about us, the Futures Group. Gosh, it's pretty exciting to think we're already on our second episode, episode two. If you haven't already, I would highly recommend going back and listening to our pilot episode. Chloe Pullinger facilitated a brilliant discussion between writers and publishers from her native Reverb Reservoir. It was a really interesting look under the hood of the dynamics of that working relationship. So if you haven't already, please, I would recommend you to go back and have a listen. Which brings us quite neatly onto this episode. And if I do say so myself, it is a corker. We have the brilliant Sylvia Montello, Head of Operations Audio Network, being interviewed by my fellow Futures Group committee member, Kaylee Ramchand. Sylvia's had a fascinating and diverse career journey and is super open with Kaylee sharing her experiences and wisdom. It's got all the ingredients for a great episode, really. We can dive right in, but do stick around till the end to hear how you can get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you, our listeners, and connect with anyone who wants to get a bit more involved with the work of the Futures Group or the wider MPA. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, I'm MPA Futures Committee member Kaylee Ramchand, and I'm super excited to be here with Sylvia Montello. Sylvia is a seasoned music industry senior exec with 30 years of marketing, commercial and operational experience. She's worked for companies big and small and is currently head of operations at Audio Network. She's an active member of the Association for Electronic Music and co-founder of Dance Label Remarkable, with the mission to nurture new songwriter and producer talent from underrepresented areas, including women, gender minorities, LGBTQ+, and minority ethnic communities. Hi, Sylvia. It's really great to have you here today. Hi, Kayleen. Thanks for having me. Um, so let's start with you. Uh, how did you get started in music? 
Um, well, I suppose way back when, when I was uh, when I was little, I actually kind of got into learning music and, and playing instruments. Um, my dad kind of helped push me in that direction because he was really musical. Um, and I was really lucky back then at state school, we were able to have music lessons, which I know is something that isn't available to a lot of kids now. But um, I started learning music and I got quite obsessed with it. It was basically the thing I knew I wanted to do from when I was at school. Um, but I didn't know what job that was going to look like. So I went and uh, did a music degree. Uh, and then when I came out of that degree and I needed to start earning some money, I took my CV around to loads of record shops and I got a job as a sales assistant working in our price in Covent Garden. Um, so, yeah, that was how that was how I started was actually like working behind a counter in a record store Um because I'd learned about classical music and jazz and, and other sort of genres of music, um, I was their sort of specialist for a while. Um, and then a job came up at our price head office where they were looking for someone to join the buying team. So I applied for that with the support of my manager at the time. And uh, I got that job. And that was um, basically dealing with all of the record companies who were selling their new releases across classical jazz, back catalogue, basically any of the sort of more niche genres outside of frontline pop and rock releases. So I, I kind of dealt with all of those labels and I would go through their new releases and decide which of the records would be suitable to put across our chain of stores and what the marketing campaigns would look like. So that, that was my kind of, you know, my first proper job and introduction into the music industry was, was via working in a shop. And that's a really, really interesting, I guess, um, career path. I mean, we've done quite a few of these and, you know, I've I've been on um, a lot of panels and, and kind of listened to a lot of panels and starting at a record store is, is um, you know, quite a unique way to, to get, I guess, into the industry in the sense that we see it kind of behind the scenes, um, you know, working in records, working in operations. So you said you... you went to university to study music performance you study music business it was actually um it's quite rare I think in that it's a bachelor of science degree in music so there, there was a bit of focus on performance but actually a lot of it was about learning different areas that surround music so we did things like music psychology we did a course on music therapy. Uh, so we did quite a lot in conjunction with Nordoff Robbins about how music actually um, works as a therapeutic area for, for, for adults and children. Uh, we did a bit of studio engineering course, acoustics, and then we learnt about the sort of non-classical, non-core areas of music. So we did a course on ethnomusicology, which taught us different scales, different rhythms, different ways of putting music together that we find across different areas of the world, which was fascinating. Um, and, you know, 20th, 20th century pop music. So we, we studied kind of Beethoven, Mozart and stuff like that a lot less than most traditional music courses. And that was what appealed to me about this course, because I'd kind of done all of that stuff at school. I did music A-level, did all the sort of traditional learning about symphonies and concertos and all that stuff. And, and really what I wanted to do was something a bit different. So that 
course um, provided all of that. Um, in terms of the music business side of it, that was kind of missing. Um, so when I was at university, which is a long time ago now, there wasn't really the f- a focus on music as a business. It kind of still wasn't really seen as a proper job or an industry or a business as such. So we didn't get to learn the business skills. We didn't learn anything about how the kind of finances and and commerce of of the music industry worked or really how to sort of operate within that. It was still very much learning about music, but not about it in terms of a career path. Um, I know that that's something that is much more broadly offered now in music business courses, but it just didn't exist back then. So at the time when I did kind of get those steps into the industry, I was just having to learn as I went along and pick up all of those skills through either, you know, colleagues or training or osmosis a lot of the time. I mean, you you had to just do a lot of learning on your feet as you went through by listening and watching and picking things up and then translating them into something that would make sense from a business perspective. Listening to you talk about your degree, it's really funny because I graduated um, from my Bachelor of Arts in Music um, six, seven years ago now, and our courses sound absolutely identical and and it's funny you know even six years ago music business that there wasn't a great deal of music business courses around and you know in a general music course like mine there were kind of business modules offered but they were catered way more to the general international business world rather than to you know the music industry and it's something that I like to to talk about a lot um, in terms of accessibility into the music industry looking at your career now you know or looking when you when you started your career and looking now say you were just starting out today um, how do you think things have changed in in the industry in terms of accessibility do you think you today still would have gone to university to study music with a view to getting into the industry That's a great question. I think given how passionate I was about all areas of music, I probably still would have wanted to go to university. Um, Also, uh, being the daughter of uh, Italian immigrants who didn't have an opportunity for education, it was something that was quite big in our family anyway, that my parents had two daughters who both went to university. I think we were the first people in our family to get a higher education. So from that perspective, there still would have been a, pu- a push for me personally to, to get a degree. That said, I think um, without that sort of backdrop of, of, of needing to prove our worth from an educational perspective, um, I don't think it's necessary to get a, a, a degree or a music degree to, to get into the industry, because I think what we are looking for when we recruit people into the industry is actually um you know, for people to have shown that they've got an understanding of how music works, really helpful, but a passion to to be able to hone a particular skill that they've got and use that skill to to really help drive whatever area they're looking into. So, you know, it's just as just as easy and, and relevant to go from school or from some kind of vocational college course 
or even just to try and get actual work experience within whether it's a label or a publisher or, or whatever sort of area of music people want to get into. Because what's the most important thing, rather than being able to prove you've got a qualification, is being able to prove that you've got the right aptitude and passion and skills to be able to do that job. And really importantly, to be able to work within that team environment. Um, and that's something that often education or courses can't teach you is just the you know how to actually um, operate as part of a team uh, and the sort of politics and nuances that go around that and that's that's something that you know I've had to acquire those skills as I've gone through in my career and sort of just understanding where to tread lightly where to lean in um, how to collaborate and, and those sorts of things so I think those are probably more important than having to go down the formalized degree route these days. So let's let's go back to you and and you know let's keep thinking about you know learning these lessons on the job. What do you think has been your your biggest mistake in your career and and what did you learn from it? In a way to start off with um I I didn't understand maybe sort of leaning into some of what we've just been talking about in terms of the politics of how to work with other people, the, the importance of, of collaborating, getting people on your side and getting people to kind of champion you and what you're doing. I think when I started off, I believed that if I just kind of, if I just worked really hard, did the job that I was asked to do, deliver the results, that that would that would mean that I would be able to succeed I'd get promoted I'd get noticed etc etc and uh, being being a naturally actually very quiet and shy person which I know a lot of people wouldn't believe now but that was how I was um, I I just got my head down and got on with things but didn't make enough effort I think in engaging with peers and colleagues and the rest of the industry I was just very focused on the job at hand and and not at the bigger picture and I think that that didn't help me early on and it probably made things a bit more of a challenge and a struggle and it was something that I had to sort of overcome you know nervousness of of meeting new people or building networks or speaking in public or presenting all of those sorts of things um, and I was probably a bit spiky as well because I just didn't have that I didn't know then what I know now in terms of the best ways in which to approach people and engage with them and, and really get them to want to work with you and collaborate with you so yeah I think my approach was probably my biggest mistake back in the earlier days of my career I'd say. And if we, we turn this question on its head, um, if you could identify one thing that's made the biggest difference to your career, what would it be? Understanding how to work with and engage and inspire and manage teams of people, I think has probably been the thing that for me has made has made my career, but also has given me the most joy out of my career as well. Um, you know, managing teams and leading people isn't something that everyone's cut out for. It's not something that I would propose anyone go into lightly because it's, um, it, it's, uh, it's something that you need to have your heart and soul in because to do it properly, you've, you've potentially got people's career aspirations um, and success in your hands if you do it right 
and you can help nurture and inspire people and help them to maybe smooth some of the rough edges that you can notice in them so that they get better at what they're doing, at how they're working within teams and how they're potentially leading their teams. If you can do that, that's the that's the biggest success, I think, within any industry, but certainly within music, because unfortunately in music, my uh, my own experience has been that there are a lot of not very good leaders and managers within the music industry, um, and it can be a very unkind, unsupportive and unnurturing place. Certainly, traditionally, it has been. I think that's changing now, and I think that's something that I'm certainly inspired to try and help continue with that change, because um, you know, creative industries can be tough places. There's always competition for jobs, and sometimes managers and, and companies make you feel like if you slip up in one tiny way then you can be out the door and there's another 15 people queuing up to take your job and and that can put a, a sort of pressure on people that is very detrimental to their well-being and to their career and their success so I think reversing that um, it, and and being part of the uh, of a core of people that I know are really looking to make sure that music is a great place for people to work in and a genuinely great place for people to be able to be inspired and developed and succeed. I think that is, that's what success in music is now looking like to me anyway. And what do you think managers and, and companies could be doing to, to support their staff? You know, there's been a massive shift, I guess, and, and a lot of conversations within the music industry about mental health and work-life life balance what what kind of procedures and and processes can we be putting in place to make sure that the music industry is a great place to work I think that people that that manage and lead teams you know there's a there's a whole more, lot more we can still be doing in terms of giving those people the training the and the skills to understand how to tailor the way that they work with people to suit the individual, how to make sure that when it comes to work-life balance and mental health, that people that work within the music industry are treated as grown-ups and trusted to do the job. And when I talk about doing the job, I don't mean rocking up at nine o'clock, sitting at your desk and then leaving at five. That's that's not what doing a job is about. If, if actually doing a job means, well, I do my best chunk of work between 10 and 12, and then I need to go off for two hours to go to the gym or do something family related, but I make up the time later in the evening. That sort of flexibility to understand that we're not all cookie cut. You know, people people excel at different times and different ways and in different environments and understanding how to get the best out of people, giving them that flexibility and freedom and, and really looking at the quality of their work rather than uh, clock watching people or, or putting them under undue pressure. I think those things will be really important to help make music you know, less of a place that can actually cause mental health issues. I mean, this, you know, let's let's look at the reality of this, that a lot of a lot of people that have worked in music over the years, because of the pressures of workload, the pressures of the industry, it's actually been a place that hasn't been good for a lot of people to work in. And we need to fix that because music is something that supports the mental health of people that listen to it. Um, it should also support and encourage the mental health of people that work in it, perform it or have any part in it whatsoever. And I don't think that's been the case. 
Um, I'm hoping that the industry is really learning some lessons from lockdown and COVID and the fact that we can get away from this whole presenteeism nonsense that was in place before of expecting people to have to be sat at a desk at a particular time with people looking over their shoulder to make sure that they're working. Um, let's do away with that and look at more flexible ways of working, balancing being in the office from being at home, figuring out what sort of balance that looks like for every individual because it is different at different stages of your life or your different home situations. And, and really encouraging people to be transparent about when they are struggling with something, whether it's physical health or mental health. I mean, at Audio Network in particular, I've, I've found a culture where people are really encouraged to bring their whole selves to work. I know that that's a sort of maybe a cliche, but for companies to genuinely adopt that and mean that if, if you need to turn around and say, I'm really struggling today because of X, Y, Z, I need a bit of time out, but I'll make it up another time. And to be able to be honest about that and to get support back from the business in return is gold dust. And I think that's something that the rest of the industry needs to really look at and adopt. I know that's happening in pockets of it. I think it needs to happen across the piece now. So let's talk about your your role at Audio Network because you're, you know, you're relatively fresh there, I suppose. What prompted your move or rather what appealed to you about the role in the company? Two things really appealed to me. Uh, one was that it's um, it's an operations role, but with with a different twist because it's actually it's a floating role between all of the different areas of the business. So there isn't an operations team structure. This is probably the first time in well over a decade that I'm not managing any any people as a line manager. But what my role is about is sitting in the core of the business, working with every single functional area of the business, every territory, um, and then a structure of cross-functional teams that we have to, to really be sort of a floating role in the middle where I can be neutral, I can be supportive, and I can be troubleshooting and fixing things uh, and helping to drive the whole strategy forward without there being a, a, a sort of you know agenda being driven from an operations team it's a, it's a very different way i think for for operations to work and um and it's great because i love engaging with people i love building relationships with people and being able to try and help them professionally and personally to kind of get over whatever the challenges are and find solutions and help things to move forward. So that really speaks to me as a people person. I also really wanted at this stage in my career to just carry on learning about a different area. So moving into the production music and sync area as one that I had sort of skirted around the edges before, but not really been immersed in, provided me with a big amount of learning um, which is hopefully sort of completing the jigsaw puzzle of my industry knowledge as I go through. So having, you know, covered the, the recorded music side, marketing, operations, um, now, you know, sort of moving much more onto the sort of publishing sync and uh, production music area means that I don't stop learning. And, and that's super important to me because I think learning is for life and I get bored very easily. So I need to keep on refreshing my skills and learning new things. Otherwise, I kind of just get to a point where I don't feel like I'm 
contributing enough because I've kind of got itchy feet and I'm looking for the next thing to move on to. So we have quite a diverse um, MPA Futures membership. For those not not familiar, um, what is production music? So production music is music that is specially commissioned to be used on television, in films, in advertising and for brands as well. So um, the way in which we work is that we have, you know, specific composers and artists that we sign and we get commissions in for particular projects in the film, TV and ad and sync space. And then we actually commission music from our composers specifically to, to fit those briefs. It's very different from the, the kind of traditional recorded music side where you have an artist that records music, they work with a record label and distributor and that music gets distributed out to fans. And it's very much sort of driven by the, the you know, what the artist's passion is and what their creative vision is. Um, this is actually something which is more creating music for specific briefs, which also in turn means that there is guaranteed payment for that as well. So unlike the, the streaming side of things where you can release an album and then, you know, how much you might get paid for it depends on whether people engage with it and actually listen to it and how successful it is. Um, this provides a lot more stability for the composers and artists because they know that the music they're being commissioned to do has a particular purpose. They get paid a fee for delivering it. And then they also get the royalties further down the line, however much it's being used for, for its kind of end purpose. So that's the kind of fundamental difference. Um, and it's really interesting, actually, at Audio Network, because we also have a record label arm. So we do work with artists who release their own music commercially through DSPs. And then they also write music that we commission for them, which we then release to the DSPs as well. So it's, it's like a hybrid model. Um, which which works quite nicely. And it's something that I think we're looking at uh, growing over the time. So you've touched on the fact that your your career has, I guess, spanned quite a few areas of the business. What has been the, the biggest change, in your opinion, in the music industry throughout that time? Um, I do genuinely feel that now versus when I started in the industry it is uh, it's taken a lot more seriously as a business um, people are a lot more focused on the investment that is made in particular projects and much more focused on the data that is coming in around how music is being consumed and where and what that means and how that data is being used to kind of inform the strategies that people are using then to continue to be successful. So, you know, I think in, I started in the industry in the 90s. There was still a bit of a hangover where, you know, it, I'm not saying it was all kind of party time and nobody really cared about the numbers, but certainly it has become much more numbers and data driven than it was before. It's also become a lot more democratic in terms of who can actually get their music released. I mean, that's probably the biggest change from the creative side. When I started, it was still very much in order for you to be able to get your music out there and get fans listening to it, you had to be signed to a record label. Those 
agreements were still very much in the record label's favour and not so much in the artist's favour. Um, but it was all about that because the, the, the record labels and distribution, they had, they had the method of actually getting the music from the artist to the retail stores and therefore to the fans. That's been flipped on its head now with the kinds of label services models and also the fact that you know, DIY artists can deliver their music directly onto the biggest streaming platforms in the world. So that's been a fundamental shift. I don't know to what extent it's necessarily still working for the vast majority of creators um, in terms of earning a living out of music, but at least it has given people the opportunity um, to be able to sort of carve a career and do, do things themselves without having to sign their copyrights away and sign their rights away to a big label and then hope that maybe one day they recoup and they get some royalties back. Um, so yeah, that, those two things I think are a really big sort of shift since when I started. Let's talk about your work with um, Remarkable. How did that come about? So um, a long-term kind of industry colleague and friend of mine and I were talking for a little while about, you know, one day it would be great to run a record label. So we've kind of had that idea in our heads for a while. But when we finally got down to saying, let's make it reality, we didn't just want to be another run-of-the-mill label. Um, we, we are both big dance and electronic music fans, and we had recognised that. Uh, in certain genres in particular, it's still very dominated by white men. And we wanted to make a change to that. Um, we, we know that there is really great talent out there that, that maybe isn't getting a look in through the traditional models because also a lot of the A&R teams at the labels are similarly white men. Um, and because people tend to kind of try, you know, they unconsciously recruit people that remind them of them you can end up in a sort of feedback loop where just lots more white male artists are being signed than people of color women people with disabilities you know you name it so we wanted to make a difference with that so that's why we set up remarkable specifically to try and find and nurture talent from across those different sectors we're not saying that we will never work with with white men we are working with one white male producer at the moment but who all of the collaborators on his album are female so, and he, uh, he has a, a very a very great approach to wanting to support and nurture more female talent uh, but that yes we wanted to basically work with more women more people from diverse ethnic communities the lgbtq community which is poorly represented in some genres like drum and bass for example so we're we, we're actually delighted that we have a trans producer and uh, a gay producer on our books working with us uh, in drum and bass which is fantastic so that that's really the, the rationale behind setting up Remarkable and the work that we're trying to do. And what do you think the industry could be doing as a whole to support underrepresented talent both as creators and in the general music industry workforce? I am a supporter of the idea of, of kind of People call it positive discrimination or quotas, whatever you want to call it. I think making sure that whether you're recruiting people to work within the industry or whether you're recruiting and A&Ring talent to make sure that you are looking at the balance of your workforce or your roster and consciously thinking 
you know, how could we be making sure that this is reflecting of the society that we're living in, but also very much reflecting the music that is being consumed and the genres that are being consumed and the people that are making that music. So, you know, I, I do support putting some targets in place to make sure that those kinds of, you know, that kind of representation does end up happening. Um, I know some people don't support quotas or targets in that way. And, you know, they have this notion of, oh, well, just get the best person for the job. But as history appears to have shown us, if you leave it to people's devices, they will continue to carry on hiring people that remind them of them. And if those people are white, middle-class white men, then we just end up in that feedback loop that I described earlier. Having targets to achieve and try, trying to have a time frame to achieve them in is really important. Looking outside the box in terms of where you're going to be finding that talent as well. So I know that was an area that, that we were looking at when I was still at COBOL, actually, making sure that if we wanted to recruit more people from different socioeconomic backgrounds and different ethnic backgrounds, that just putting an ad in, in the usual old magazines or the usual old kind of music industry newsletters wasn't going to cut it because those people weren't there. Those people weren't engaging with that particular blog or that particular magazine. So finding ways in which you're reaching out to the right places to be able to encourage uh, that talent to, to come forward and really looking at nurturing it is, is going to be really crucial to making sure that we redress the balance of the industry. It is starting to happen. I mean, it's immeasurably better than it was 10 years ago, but there's still a lot of work to do. And that includes around supporting people through their journey in the industry as well. And I, I will say this as a woman in my 50s, there are not, not enough of us that still get through to this point and are still operational in music. And that's also something that needs to be addressed. So there's there's the age factor as well as gender and socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds to, to, to look at as well in this. You've, you've been a great guest on today's um, MPA Futures podcast. I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you to round up. First of all, what book podcast resource has changed your outlook or perspective on the music industry or or I mean in life in general oh gosh that's an interesting one um this might sound really weird but I don't tend to I don't tend to actually kind of read lots of music books or listen to music podcast per se I mean unless they're actually just podcasts of music that I like so I don't know a podcast that's changed my my life in music would be the hospital records podcast because that's just immersed me in drum and bass for the last however many years of uh, and that is my big one passion so um, yeah, if there's going to be a podcast that's probably changed my perspective and the way that I operate in music, it would be the Hospital Records podcast. And in that vein, your favourite song? Oh, God, this is another hideously difficult one, depending <laughs> on what mood I'm in. Um, I'm going to say today, right now, um, I will go for Someone to Watch Over Me by Ella Fitzgerald. Um, but if you asked me this afternoon, I'd probably have a different answer. You know, I have probably about 10 songs that all kind of jostle around as being my favourites. Um, but I, I, 
one of her tracks came up in the car the other day randomly on shuffle and it just reminded me that I could listen to Ella Fitzgerald all day every day until I die and never get bored of hearing her voice uh, so yeah I'll plumb for that one today. Well Ella Fitzgerald is a great choice for 2pm on a Friday. <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sylvia. It's been great having you. I'm sure all of our listeners are just as thankful. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers. Wow, what a brilliant discussion. Thanks so much to Kaylee and Sylvia giving up their time. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. I certainly did. Lots and lots to take away, particularly as wider society conversations continue to develop around diversity, equality and inclusion, and of course the same conversations within our publishing circles, so lots and lots of food for thought. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the MPA Futures Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at MPA Futures Group, or you can join our Facebook group. If you're newer into your career, our rough rule of thumb is if you've been in music publishing less than 10 years. Uh, or if you're even not in music publishing but would like to find out a bit more, uh, then we'd really encourage you to get involved. We'd love to hear from you. Message us on Facebook, comment or message on Instagram. We'd also love your feedback about these podcast episodes, both good and bad, so we can tailor them towards you, our faithful listeners. Faith- I'm not sure if we could say faithful after two episodes, but I think we'll, we'll roll with it. Thank you so much again for listening. My name is Henry Marsden, and we'll see you next time on the MPA Futures Group podcast.